Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Smota Kindle, SVP of Product and Programming with ACFCS, and on this episode, we're taking on a hot issue in financial crime the latest and greatest updates on FinCrime compliance technologies, but with a little bit of a twist. We've talked quite a bit on this program about the potentially transformative impact of technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and cloud applications in FinCrime compliance, but there's much more to this story than simply the technical aspects. If these tech applications truly are transformative, or at least can be transformative if implemented properly. What does that mean for human beings, for hiring and staffing and compliance programs, for example? How does it impact the skills needed to manage compliance professionals both now and in the future? And what are the gaps that we're still facing as we try to keep up with nimble and creative financial criminals? These are not easy questions to answer, but fortunately, I'm joined by Vikas Agarwal, leading partner of the PwC Financial Crime Unit. He's bringing insights from his work on technology deployments with financial institutions and companies around the world. Well, Vikas, thank you so much for being here on the Financial Crimecast. Uh, It's a real pleasure to have you, and I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation around technology trends in the financial crime space. Um, obviously a critically important topic, one with quite a bit of development. Um, so I'm thrilled to get into it, but uh, before we reach that point, uh, let's just learn a little bit more about you. So uh, do you mind just explaining to the audience out there a little bit about uh, who you are and your current role at PwC? Awesome. Well, Brian, first, thank you for having me on today and really excited to be speaking to you guys. Um, So at PwC, I run a practice that's called our Financial Crime Unit. Uh, We focus on anti-money laundering, fraud, sanctions, uh, trade surveillance, as well as know your customer regulations in um, all types of uh, institutions, uh, banks, payment companies, technology firms, um, also even, you know, I think recent trends in working with um, consumer companies um, as they're hit with more fraud attacks. Uh, Our team is composed of kind of three different segments. Uh, One, we have an array of regulatory experts who come from different regulatory bodies. Uh, Two, we have a number of technology experts um, who do a lot of implementing systems and data science work in this area. And then three, we do operations where we run over 4,000 people helping our clients clear AML alerts and fraud alerts and help onboarding customers from that standpoint as well. So it's really, you know, an exciting practice and an exciting team. And, you know, we're excited to be here with you today. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for that. I think probably uh, a number of uh, folks in our audience have worked with PwC, uh, either on the operations or tech or other engagements. So definitely familiar with uh, the the practice out there and obviously one of the, the leading names in this space. So great to uh, speak with you. Uh, so let's dive right into it. You know, you mentioned what you do. Um, and you have a, a sort of privileged role in the sense that you get a front row seat into what's happening in financial institutions and even potentially some you know non-financial corporates out there building effective financial crime programs. Um, so from your from your seat, what are some of the biggest trends you're seeing working with clients in this field related to you know application of technology to combat financial crime? Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Um, 
I, I would say macro level, what, what we are seeing clients move towards is trying to go from creating a program that was more about checking the box for regulations to a program based on purpose and trying to really get back to how are they protecting the financial system? And what does protecting the financial system mean? It means you know stopping bad guys from coming into it. And that's everything from human trafficking to tax evasion, um, to wildlife trafficking, to helping enforce sanctions for things that are going around um, around different areas of the world. And really to do that, I think we're seeing kind of uh, three macro trends and um, how technology is being used. Um, one, we're seeing people focus on how do they assess their risk in a better way? And to do that, a lot of people in the past have used spreadsheets and more manual ways to figure out what their risks are and their inherent risk to money laundering and fraud. And we're seeing them digitize that process. So they're going on applications now that help them use more macroeconomic variables, more quantitative data to actually say, well, this is the risk to money laundering in my institution. And this is how this risk is changing month on month, quarter on quarter, based on the behaviors of my customers. And here's where I may need to focus more controls. And here's where I may want to shift the focus of my investigators. And here's weak spots um, in kind of our control infrastructure that could help me kind of protect the financial system. The second thing is there's this huge movement to the cloud. And when people move to the cloud, they have this opportunity to use more machine learning and essentially move away from rules-based scenarios that are actually detecting financial crime to more sophisticated scenarios that are bringing in hundreds and thousands of data points to really come to a conclusion um, initially whether somebody might be you know, committing some kind of a bad, bad action. And, and that is allowing them to get more sophisticated at pointing the flashlight. And that ability to move to the cloud, to use more compute power, to use more sophisticated algorithms, um, that's really changing the game and how detection can happen. And then the last area that technology is in the operations space and investigations, we're seeing a lot more technology to help people do the investigations of alerts that are coming out. So they're able to spend less time gathering data that that's becoming more automated and they're using bots and things like that to do that. Less time reading articles about negative news because there's analytics that can be done to figure out what articles you need to read and more time trying to connect the dots and the networks of organized crime that may be happening and actually doing a true investigation um, with these data points that are coming together. Yeah, those are some, uh, those are a fantastic answer. And I think you 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 laid out some uh, really great threads to pull on there. But I, I, you know, I love what you said about moving towards a more purpose-driven approach to fighting financial crime, right? And away from the, the check the box, because at the core of implementing you know, machine learning technology or moving to the cloud or there's, you know, uh, it's a huge technical challenge. It's an important one. There's a lot to get uh, to focus on just within the technical challenge. But I feel like sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the ultimate purpose and goal, which is, as you mentioned, improving results against financial crime. So um, great, great, uh, bigger picture look at, you know, what we're trying to achieve. I, you know, just to, to I want to return to a point you made about artificial intelligence, machine learning, but just to get your perspective on the regulatory stance on this, because one of the 
past hangups, and I don't know how true it is now, that we've heard in this space is we would love to innovate. We'd love to apply, you know, these these technologies, whether it's cloud-based solutions or uh, increased use of machine learning or automation. But we're concerned about how the regulators will treat us. You know, will they uh, will they uh, ding us for adopting something that may be untested, un unproven? Um, are we going to have to run parallel systems? You know, all of these types of questions. So, how has the kind of regulatory viewpoint on this evolved or not evolved in your your perspective working with clients so i I, th I think it's evolving and i think regulators are absolutely open to kind of using more sophisticated technology um i do think it's important that as you're doing this you're doing this in kind of a responsible way and you're think and you're showing them how you're taking the journey to really document and have standards around what you're doing so like a lot of people for example they throw around the word artificial intelligence a lot of this stuff isn't really artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence takes over 5,000 features in a machine learning model to replicate human decision-making. And so a lot of this stuff is really machine learning and really looking at, well, what is the machine really learning? And what's the concept of explaining supervised learning and unsupervised learning? And I think what the regulators really look to is, do you have the right kind of competency within your organization to explain what you're doing, to set standards around what you're doing, and show the roadmap about how you're getting there. Um, you're absolutely right that they look for running things in parallel for a period of time and proving out that these new techniques are better than the old techniques, right? And But we have seen companies successfully do it, but it does take uh, more discipline around your documentation, more discipline around telling the story, and, and more, I would say, even technology around actually, you know, how do you do your model validation and your model governance? like doing it on pen and pencil and paper no longer kind of can happen because you need to do it at scale. You need to be ready to explain everything really quickly. And when you could do that, we see clients make the turn very quickly. Yeah, great point about bringing the regulator along on that journey um, and, you know, echoing what OCC and others have said about, you know, kind of responsible innovation and innovation within guide rails. Um, so you mentioned artificial intelligence and you differentiated, you made a differentiation between artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is really important. Um, and this was something I feel like maybe in the first wave of uh, AI applications out there in the industry was not made enough, leading to some potential disappointment, right, um, in the adoption and use of, of AI. Um, where are we now? How are you seeing the application of both machine learning and maybe more things that look like true AI um, in the fight against financial crime? And what guidance would you give to organizations that are figuring out, you know, either how they adopt machine learning AI if they're not currently using much of it, or, you know, for those that are maybe a little bit more mature, what comes next in the adoption of machine learning and AI? Absolutely. Like, I, I look, overall, I think there is to everything, there's crawl, walk, and run. And, and I, my personal view is that nobody is truly doing AI. Um, AI is a very, again, sophisticated, like other than maybe um, certain certain of the biggest search firms out there that are truly doing that in search engines, um, having over 5,000 features that are truly features with the right data sets is really, really difficult. Um, but where people are being successful is they are doing machine learning, both unsupervised and supervised. And I think as I, you think about that crawl, walk, run journey, um, it's about taking kind of an individual set of rules 
looking at that rule and saying, what other information and data can I bring into that rule to make that rule smarter? So for example, let's say a lot of people do detection for structuring. And structuring is really saying, it's, the, the law was designed that above $10,000, you have to report cash transactions. So somebody who's trying to get around that is going and giving a lot of cash transactions between nine and $10,000. So traditionally, there's been a transaction monitoring rule that alerts on somebody. If I walk into a bank and three times in a month, I'm giving them 9,000, 9,000, 9,000, or 9,999. You know, the theory is potentially I'm trying to circumvent having that reported to the government that I'm bringing in these large cash deposits. So your transaction monitoring system is detecting that. Now somebody is detecting that, is generating an alert. They're opening up my name and they're saying, hey, this, why is Vikas doing this? Is this normal behavior for him? Does he run a cash intensive business like a laundromat? Um, is there something in Vikas's past or is somebody Vikas connected to potentially raise suspicion that he might be kind of funneling this money in for somebody? That, that's what we do today. Now you move to a machine learning model and you bring in all that information upfront so that now you're not only looking at whether Vikas came in and deposited three $9,000 to $10,000 checks, but you have the information and the data to say, well, I've already kind of triangulated as a feature whether there's negative news out there on them. I've already triangulated the type of know your customer information and his expected versus actual activity. I've already triangulated you know, over 50 things that are the small decisions that an investigator makes to ultimately decide whether I'm going from level one to level two. And that that's really when you think about getting started, it's figuring out in those um, kind of isolated cases where you can bring more of that information in and then use these um, new models to essentially point the flashlight more focused. Yeah, excellent points there. And, you know, uh, I think one of the key challenges raised by this is the access to data and not just data within your own institution, but, you know, data kind of more broadly, right? Um, the fuel of effective machine learning or true artificial intelligence is data, and you need a lot of it in order to be able to do this well, um, which raises an interesting point, you know, and the, 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 the counter trend towards the kind of acquisition of, of large data sources has been a push towards data privacy in the financial crime space. Um, so first off, you know, do you see a kind of tension between the increased adoption of AI and machine learning and increased data privacy uh, regulation? If not, what impact is increased data privacy having on financial crime compliance programs? Look, I, I definitely think there, there's a tension there, right? And, and the ultimate tension is that the most sophisticated way to do this and the most effective way to do this would be essentially a government entity taking everyone's data, having it at the center and being able to run network analytics between different banks and different institutions and follow an individual between their entire path um, of money. But that we know that's not possible, right? It's not, um, it's not something that's happened at scale in any country around the world. Um, you know, from a privacy perspective, I do think that um, banks and regulators feel like we do give up some of our privacy to, to fight financial crime and fraud. Um, and there, I think there's a willingness and openness for most consumers to allow the banking institutions to do that. If you really read in their agreements, that there are a lot of agreements now that don't allow you to use data for marketing purposes or don't allow you to use data 
um, you know, for kind of customer profitability purposes, but they do have a lot of clauses buried in there that allow you to use data for regulatory purposes and, and for fraud purposes. So but I don't think that that's holding them back necessarily, but it, it is definitely, it. you have to really check the box on getting through the privacy requirements, making sure these things are set up right. The other thing I would mention that even more than privacy that I think, you know, um, that I advise our clients to really watch out for is the inherent bias that exists in data. So if you're going to use a set of data, let's just say you're using a lot of decisions that for the last 10 years, your investigators made to escalate cases from level one to level two and level two to level SARS. I mean, these cases were being done by humans and humans are inherently biased in what they do. And now if we're training the machine of that bias, you're now making the machine carry forward the biases of the individuals. And, and you so kind of measuring that, understanding that, understanding where that can happen um, is really key and critical to doing kind of machine learning in a responsible way. Yeah, that, the bias piece is, is huge. I mean, we could talk about uh, that for probably <laughs> the remainder of the podcast. It's a huge, huge challenge right now in the AI space. Um, and I'm excited to see that how we evolve towards solutions. I know there's efforts to build, you know, fair AI and uh, unbiased AI already taking place out there. Um, let's, you know, we, we've been... We've been positive so far, which is good. Um, but let's flip over to the, you know, the negative side. We've talked about some some good things that uh, and some very you know, exciting tech that's being applied, um, positive things that it can do. But where are we still potentially behind the eight ball, so to speak, when it comes to keeping up with financial criminals? Um, themselves early adopters of any technology, including AI. We've seen some limited, you know, AI applications or machine learning applications, bot attacks, and um, even things like the use of limited deep fakes in the, the financial crime space. So as financial criminals adopt some of the same innovative technologies as we are, where are the gaps um, and and how are we failing in some ways to keep up with financial criminals? Sure. Like, you know, I think when I look at it, um, I, I think there's three things in the financial system that I see um, are exposure points that are, and these are hard problems to solve for. Um, first is kind of this, the on and off ramp with digital assets, right? People are now moving money quickly between fiat and between cryptocurrencies. And that money is kind of moving between exchanges, um, between the coins and the blockchain, then moving back and forth to cash between multiple financial institutions. And that's a really hard ball to chase, right? Because everybody's got a slice of the pie and a slice of the puzzle, and it's hard to see the full picture. So that, that's what I would tell you is exposure point number one. Um, exposure point number two is, um, I think a lot of regulation and control have been put at the large banks um, and not as much at the small banks and the fintech firms that are emerging. Um, there is kind of this concept that I believe of regulatory asymmetry that has not balanced out. And if I was a money launderer, I would <laughs> I would go to a small credit union. I would go to some of these fintechs that aren't asking for much information about you. I wouldn't go to some of the largest banks in the country that ask 20, 30 questions um, because this is where they've been driven by the regulators. They don't want, they don't need, it, it, it makes a harder customer experience. It creates more friction, but they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And that it also gathers more information to know what your customer is doing and not doing. So that, that asymmetry with the smaller institutions can definitely cause kind of, again, a weak point. Um, but at the same time, you know, do those smaller institutions, like do they have the economic capital to invest? 
And how do you enable them to spend the type of money? Um, you know, there's an institution, one of the largest banks in the U.S., spends over a billion dollars in money laundering prevention. You can't expect a credit union to do that. <laughs> um, so, the, like, how do you subsidize that almost to protect the financial system? So, I think that's kind of exposure point number two. And then I think exposure point number three is kind of the global correspondent banking system. And you look at wires and how wires and how money moves through banks. Um, there's still the tech around um, that wire messaging is still pretty archaic. And people are trying to parse through these wire messages to find information and find breadcrumbs of wire instructions that may be indicating a person or a country where money shouldn't be moving around sanctioned countries. And I still think there's a leapfrog that needs to happen there. And, and the tech is out there and the technology is not out there for that to be much more robust than it is today. Um, and I, I think that's when you look at decentralized finance and the movement um, towards more peer-to-peer -peer kind of payment systems that are going to allow for money not to move as much through these networks that can things can get information can get lost, but more direct payments happening and that can be screened more readily. Um, you know, that that's kind of exposure point number three. Yeah, no, great points there. And it really speaks to one of the the wider points you made earlier, which is this need for information sharing and interconnection between financial institutions, whether that's crypto firms and banks, as there's that crypto on off ramps, or, you know, credit unions, larger institutions, whatever the case may be, it really seems like that is a, a key, you know, pain point and limiting factor in the compliance space is just this, this lack of the ability to share effective information um, between institutions. And then to take it a step further, you know, between regulatory and law enforcement too. And I know there's a lot of efforts kind of halting and potentially small around that, but um, it seems like there's a big opportunity there to, you know, build out information sharing platforms, whether it's consortia or, you know, something government led or so on and so forth. So um, definitely an opportunity there to address some of the gaps. Uh, let, let's Let's take a, a, uh, a different angle and talk about the uh, trend we've heard quite a bit about in the news for the past several months, which is the great resignation um, and the big shift in you know employment, um, more people being willing to quit their job, seems to actually still be holding true um, despite some potential changes, slowdown in the economy, um, also more job hopping taking place. How is this, how are you seeing this impact your clients in terms of their ability to build effective anti-financial crime programs um, and retain the people they need to retain, right? A lot of times this takes a while to even get up to speed in this space, get the training you need. So um, how have clients been managing this and what trends have you seen to you know, build skills, upskill existing employees, whatever the case may be? Absolutely. Um, look, I would tell you workforce attrition is one of the number one issues that um, our clients are dealing with. And what, what's important is like, to your point, a lot of financial crime programs are driven by large workforces. So this is hitting them hard because you need the people that are going to onboard your customers and do enhanced due diligence. You need the people that are going to clear the sanctions alerts. You need the people that are going to go through transaction monitoring alerts. And you need the people that are going to go through fraud alerts. Um, so if you're getting more bot attacks, account takeovers, synthetic IDs, um, again, the, what's driven on the back end are large armies of people. Now, to your point, people are resigning, people are switching jobs, people are, they're, they're less productive <laughs> in a lot of cases. It's hard to measure and, and look at productivity from that standpoint. And we are finding that many people are getting caught 
through this wave of attrition where a lot of resignations, a lot of onboarding, overall workforce productivity going down and it's creating this perfect storm where it's just creating incremental backlogs and they're getting trapped in a cycle of these backlogs and eventually it kind of piles on top of them where it now causes customer experience issues and regulatory issues. So absolutely happening. Um, the steps we see people take to kind of mitigate these risks, I, I think one, there just needs to be a lot more time with people spending inspiring the workforce. Uh, I do think there's so much purpose and passion in what we do, but sometimes people forget to deliver that message. You know, we're all human. And I think delivering that message and providing that leadership is very important. Number two, I think people need to rethink how they train people. And training can't just be a WebEx or a podcast, or it, it can't be just, you know, go read this PowerPoint. Um, it's got to be a combination of bite-sized learning, of courses, of experiences, and of simulations. And that happens through technology. And there's definitely technology out there that allows you to more quickly do digitally training and help teach people the judgment, the quality, and what you need, because you got to expect some of this churn is going to happen. You're just not going to expect it not to happen. So then the question is, as you get somebody, how do you get somebody to kind of product to that productive side much faster from that standpoint? And then the third thing is, you know, I think people need to look at how they partner, how they co-source, how they have plan Bs and plan Cs, you know, to fill in those stop gaps when unexpected events happen. And that's definitely happening. And I think sometimes people start planning for the unexpected event after the event. And I think they need to plan beforehand. Uh, great point, especially right now, there's such a intense flux and change um, and so much that seems disruptive and transitional that, uh, you know, planning for the unexpected and, and expecting the unexpected to some degree is, uh, is just common sense at this point. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned that the need to focus on inspiring your team is really important um, and maybe something missing. I, I think it's a I think it's a fantastic point to emphasize um, because this can be a challenging field, but the reality is we're doing something that's very positive and ultimately like a societal good. Um, but the day-to-day -day can sometimes feel like a grind. So uh, that's obviously a critically important skill. What are the other, let's say three to five top skills that professionals may need to manage financial time, financial crime teams in compliance programs. Um, you know, as this becomes an increasingly important issue of attracting, retaining people, um, what are those skills? And you know, do you find that people generally already have those skills, or do they have to go out and and find out how to lead, how to be a leader in the financial crime space, um, and find learning resources that allow them to do that? I think people generally have the skills. I think it's it's to your point, Brian, as we get bogged down in the day to day and we forget to pull ourselves back up. Right. And I think that reminding ourselves to pull ourselves back up, reminding ourselves of that sense of purpose and passion and kind of expressing that to our teams. Um, I, it's less of a skill and more of a reminder. Right. In terms of how do we remind ourselves to do that more often while, as all the priorities are coming at you left and right you know, from that standpoint. And I think it's easy to get bogged down on the priorities. Um, I, I think the other thing that's a skill that's very important is just being able to absorb a significant amount of information from current events and from the regulators on what's happening and thinking about how do you then take that information and push it through your system in terms of your policies, your procedures, your investigators, your technology. And, and that's hard. Like that's, there's a lot coming at you and thinking about how you translate all that. 
Um, that's the number two thing that I would tell you that I think leaders in this space need to really have. And then I, and then I think three is just the empathy and the listening. And I think that is one of the biggest things that helps kind of inspire a workforce. And I, I think there just needs to be more of that. Yeah, no, it's excellent, excellent points across the board there. Yeah, the inspirational aspect and the human aspect is, is critically important and going to continue to be critically important going forward. Well, let's stay on this theme of kind of training, employee development. Um, when companies are looking at upskilling employees, they want to build the skills of their own workforce. Um, and they're considering ways to do that, potential providers to do that. Uh, what emphasis would you put on contextual versus applied learning? Um, so, you know, in other words, is it possible to have like real hands-on training before you actually go apply it to real life scenarios or is it just something that you know hey you have to do the kind of apprenticeship model that we see at a lot of institutions where somebody sits next to the analyst investigator so on and so forth and they they learn by watching um, and then learn by kind of supervised doing so what's your thoughts on that yeah look i i would tell you i mean and like i told you at the beginning i mean we run over four thousand operational resources so we deal with this challenge every day and I, I do think it's a balance of both kind of contextual learning and simulated learning. Um, so it's being able to teach the fundamentals of how do people launder money? How do they commit fraud? What are the indicators you're looking for? What does that mean in different lines of business? But then it's also going hands on and getting doing simulated learning, actually working through cases, actually testing the judgment of level one to level two and level two to SAR writing, actually kind of you know building the writing skills. That you need to affect, you know, write a narrative in terms of being able to submit the reports that you need to to the government, and that comes through practice. And I think that practice happens. You have to have the ability to have the technology tools to simulate that learning at scale and rapidly do that over a few weeks. Because I just think you're doing it through the apprentice model, and it just slows down your entire workforce, and you're not scalable. And this is where technology has to play a big role. Yeah, no, fantastic point there. Um, the, the scalability and the ability to keep uh, pace with change is incredibly important, and it gets very difficult if you don't have more structure around, you know, the training and the upskilling. Um, final question, and I'll just kind of throw it out there as a, you know, final thoughts type of question here. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. But any final recommendations for clients facing this? you know, pretty challenging landscape, frankly, uh, a lot of change, a lot of disruption, you know, struggles to retain top talent, deal with regulatory environment, changing threat landscape, really all the above. So uh, any final thoughts and recommendations out there for our audience on dealing with this world in flux? Look, I, I and I think most of um, most of our peers kind of do this in the space that it's you're not alone, right? I think there's a great network of professionals um, that are focused on this topic, that are passionate about this topic and kind of seeking help from your colleagues, from your peers and forming those professional networks to help you get through those challenges um, in kind of a, an effective way. I, I think that's the best piece of advice that I could give anyone. No, I, I appreciate that. Well, Vikas, it's been a real, as I said, I said a real pleasure having you on the program. Um, thanks so much for not only the 
insights on this topic, but really the inspiration too, to continue to push forward, uh, apply these innovative technologies, look for opportunities to improve wherever possible, bring your regulators along the journey as you do so, uh, focus on your people, build those skills, and don't forget the bigger picture along the way. So uh, thanks again for being here. Um, again, it, my guest has been Vikas with PwC. He is a partner in the Financial Services and Financial Crimes Unit Leader, um, and it's just been a it's been great to have your uh, your perspective on these topics. So thanks again for being here. Thanks, Brian. Please find the Financial Crime Cast and all of our episodes on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, and many other places where your favorite podcasts live. Uh, join us for a future episode of the Financial Crime Cast. And thanks again to all our listeners, our ACFCS members, and our CFCS certified professionals out there. Goodbye for now, everyone. <laughs>